this morning I will be reading Nehemiah 4 verses 1 through 6. Now when Sam Ballot heard that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in one day? Will they revive the stones out of heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break it down, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads, and give them up to, the plund to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt, and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. This is the word of the Lord. Do you ever look around on Sunday morning and think, what has happened here? If, you are, if you've been with us long, or especially if you've been with us from the beginning, or at least since the beginning of when I was here, what I would know, you might look around and think, man, what has happened here? From starting out such small ways uh, with just a few people, and now we look around and people are singing as loud as they can to Southern Gospel songs about Jesus and His cross being our glory. How did that happen? I, I don't think it's because of the genre of music that we're singing it's not because we have a kid's playground. We haven't had one ever. Now there's a little one that's downstairs. Um, I don't think it's because of food trucks. That's a new development for us as well. I think that the voice of the Lord is powerful, and it speaks, and people are drawn to that. We feel very confidently that that's pretty much all we offer, the Word and community. And yet we look around like, what has happened? God is using those means greatly for the sake of His name. Now, you might have noticed this morning that uh, if you read your email, and I'm sure you guys are all very diligent to read those, that I shortened the passage uh, to, from, we're reading all of chapter 3 to only six verses in chapter 4. Uh, I knew you'd want to get to your food trucks at some point, so I decided to shorten it up this morning. So let's pray, and then we'll open up Nehemiah. Father, thank you for your word. It is powerful. Your voice is powerful. It goes out and does things that can't be explained any other way, and that's what we're hoping would happen this morning, that we would submit ourselves underneath it, sit underneath it, and that the power of your word would rush over us and, and transform what needs to be transformed, change what needs to be changed, encourage and enliven and bring life into what needs life in our own world. So God, help us and use your word greatly during this time. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, Alex Smith is a quarterback in the NFL. A few years ago, he suffered a severe spiral fracture of his leg. He had a fracture when he was playing against the, Tennessee, or, no, against the, the Houston Texans that was a fracture from his ankle all the way through his tibia to his knee, and it was a spiral fracture, and his fibula was also broken. And it was so badly, so severely broken that the bone even came through the skin that when they were repairing, they had to pull off pieces of cloth from his sock that he was using as he was playing. 
It's such a, a difficult and severe spiral and compound and complex fracture required lots of plates and screws in his knee, but it also made him really susceptible to something else. The severity of the break and the break through the skin gave him a particular risk to infection. And he, if you've known this story, have heard of his story, he did suffer from severe infections. Even though they put him on antibiotics, they had to keep going in day after day because he had a severe infection that almost cost him his life and his leg. And so he faced setback after setback after setback because of the severity of the brokenness of his leg. And before he could play again, he had to, he had to fight just to keep his life. He had to fight to keep his leg. He had to fight to, so he could walk again before he ever could think about football. Now, we're pretty removed from the, the culture and the setting that the Israelites had as they are back in the promised land after exile, but, but maybe we can compare their broken situation with, with Alex Smith's knee. And here they are. They have been utterly devastated. They have suffered a severe breaking, judged by God because of their sin, and taken out of the land. And it wasn't something that's just like, we moved you, but we're going to leave everything intact. They came and they broke down the walls. They destroyed them and burned the temple with fire. They are left in the promised land, in Jerusalem, with rubble. And so when 70 years later, when God faithfully fulfills his promise to return his people back to the promised land, they're not strong either. Apparently, when you're in exile, they're not huge fans of making sure the people they have in exile are, are prospering greatly and are the strong ones and have mighty armies. And so the people that goes back is, is kind of, in a sense, a, a ragged bunch. And they're not even that numerous. And so they go back into the land, and they're in a pretty tenuous position. The wall has suffered a compound break. It's going to require, in and of itself, just the, the break itself is going to require significant work. And they're a small people. And because of the severity of the break and the weakness of the Jews, they are susceptible to all sorts of infectious setbacks. There's all sorts of risks for them for infection to come in and utterly devastate any sort of work that they would have in putting it back together. There's infectious opposition all around them. When we think about it rightly, we need to know that, that they may not survive this. Not only may the, is the wall in jeopardy, but the very people of God are in jeopardy here. They may not make it through. They may, so, may be so demoralized that they as a people and have this unique identity, they may cease to exist as that people with that unique identity. And Nehemiah 3 shows us something different. Though infection does play a part, there's cooperation to build and chapter 4 shows us how they start to begin to navigate all the opposition and the infection that comes their way. Chapter 2, verse 17, Nehemiah called his fellow Jews. He says, come let us build. And in chapter 2, verse 18, right after that, they are in with this mission. They said, let's, let's build. Let's rise up and build. And build they did. So bear with me with my pronunciations here in chapter 3 as I read this. But let's be reminded that this is God's holy word. Then Eliashib, the high priest, he rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower, tower of Hananel, and next to him, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zachar, the son of Imri, built. 
The sons of Hassaniah built the fish gate. They laid its beams, and they set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Baana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Joida, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besodeah, repaired the gate of Yeshena. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Maranothite, the men of Gibeon, and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Herahiah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephaiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Judea, son of Haramoth, repaired opposite the house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabaneah, repaired. Malchijah, the son of Haram, and Hashab, the son of Pehath-Mohab, repaired another section of the Tower of the Ovens. And next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. And they built and set its doors, its bolts, its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Malchijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakarim, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Kol Hosa, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He built it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, its bars. And he built the, the wall of the pool of Shelah of the king's garden as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, not that Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Bethzer, repaired to the point opposite the tombs of David as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired, Rehum, the son of Bani. Next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of half the district of Kila, repaired for his district. And after him, the brothers repaired. Babai, the son of Hinnadad, the ruler of half the district of Kila. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the army at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashab repaired opposite their house. And after them, Azariah, the son of Maaseah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. After him, Benuai, the son of Hinnadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Palal, the son of Uzai, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower, projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Padeah, the son of Perosh, and the temple servants living on Ophel, repaired to the point opposite of the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. And after him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. And after them, Zadok, the son of Immer, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. 
And after him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zalaph, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. And after him, Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the muster gate and to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. So here we have kind of moving, if we were to see a picture of the city, they're moving around and kind of counterclockwise position and repairing the city walls. And Nehemiah just gives us this vast summary. Here's all that's going on. Now, Nehemiah chapter 3 is in a sense, so we, we might not like it being placed here because it's out of chronological order, and that kind of pushes into our sensibilities of how we like to learn and go through things. But I think that it's out of chronological order because God divinely intended it to be that way, and that there's a good reason for it. Perhaps the reason is for the original audience. As Nehemiah kind of charts his course and thinks through why he's writing and who he's writing to, maybe he puts this here in advance before all the opposition that they're going to face to remind them that what God had purposed to do in and through him and in and through his people that he was going to see through, that he was going to make sure was accomplished. That God's hand that was upon Nehemiah and the building of the wall was indeed going to be accomplished all that he wanted to accomplish. And when God's hand is upon something, you can be guaranteed that there's going to be success there. Maybe not in the world's way, but in God's way. And so it takes out kind of the tension of the opposition that's going to remain in the rest of Nehemiah. As we look at the opposition, is it going to take out, are those infections going to take out the wall so that it can't be built? We can ultimately say, well, chapter 3 says they're building this wall. It's getting done. They're going to find success here. So what does that do for God's people as they read this account? They can see all the opposition, but they can see it through this lens of saying, God accomplished what he wanted to accomplish here. We can have confidence and trust in him because he's going to carry out what he purposes. God does something similar for us, I think, in the New Testament. He gives us the end before it's ended. What's this meant to do? This is meant to help believers, to give them confidence, to give them hope, to give them courage in the world that they're facing. Romans 8.37 says that those who are in Christ are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. We are told in advance that though we are weak, that we are more than conquerors through Christ. We have our end before it's ended. Revelation 11, chapter 15 says, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He's going to reign forever and ever. So as we look around at our world with competing kingdoms, and even within our own hearts, of competing kingdoms, we can look at Revelation and be reminded before the end has ended that there's one kingdom that's going to prevail, and all of the other kingdoms are going to be swallowed up into the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ, and He's going to reign eternally. So God is putting all other kingdoms on notice, that His kingdom is the one that's going to win in the end. And Revelation ends with God as the Omega reigning and ruling over all things with his people with him so that believers can know that no matter what all is going on that we're moving in a direction and god's hand is upon history and we're going to his end one author says this that the arc of history is long but it bends toward jesus And what this is meant to do is build the faith of God's people, to give them confidence and hope in their God that all that He says He's going to accomplish, He will accomplish. We may look around and see only crumbled and crumbling walls in our lives and in our world, but we can be reminded and know that one day God's going to fix these walls. 
and on them were going to be written his name, his glory, his renown. But notice how the wall gets built in chapter 3. Because there's a lot of names and information, but what happens in chapter 3 is actually quite remarkable. Notice what goes on in, this, in the Israelites' lives. Every hand is on deck here. There's over 40 different groups that are mentioned. There are men, there are women, there are priests, there are laymen, there are Levites, there are tradesmen, there are locals, there are non-locals, there are administrators and rulers, and there are just normal citizens. They worked together. They worked as families. They worked by town. They worked by craft. They worked by trade. They worked by calling. And all of this, they have this unity of intention, this shared commitment that they're all in together with. It's an amazing feat, an extraordinary feat of organization and concerted action. Perhaps this is displayed in chapter 3, verse 5, where we see kind of the one jarring spot in all of chapter 3, where there are some people who would not stoop to build to serve their Lord. What's strange about that is that it's really not that strange. Not normal life, right? That's not odd. If you take a whole country and you say, here's what we're going to do, this one thing, we're all going to give ourselves to this thing, that would be the norm. And yet here it's odd, it sticks out, it's jarring, it's jolting to the rest of the account. What's extraordinary isn't this, their opposition to what's going on, what's extraordinary is that everyone else is in, that everyone else is building. What's extraordinary is the organization that these 40 vast groups and various and diverse peoples put into this one feat, the cooperation, the unity, all they put in, in the midst of all this diversity of, of these Jews. There's unity, there's cooperation, that's extraordinary. All of these diverse peoples and groups were able to submit to this plan to rebuilding. They were able to work together to rebuild the wall for a larger task. They willingly and unselfishly cooperate for a bigger goal that's outside of their own personal goals and agendas. It's outside what they would probably most desire for their own personal lives. You remember that they fought the battle of like, hey, you're dealing with wanting to build your paneled homes when the temple lies in ruins. Here they're putting aside paneled homes so that they could get to building the walls around them. And so, wow, what a, an extraordinary feat that there's this great organization that makes this diverse people. It's not extraordinary that there's a few that refuse. It's extraordinary that so many were so cooperating with one another, so unified in the midst of all their diversity. Under Nehemiah's leadership, they lay aside their personal interest to cooperate and share this commitment together. And I think that their willingness to submit to this cause was surely influenced by Nehemiah's example and leadership. You think of Nehemiah's life. Nehemiah could have remained with Artaxerxes. He had a great position. He was the chief cupbearer to the most powerful man in the world. That's a cush job for him, right? Yeah, you, you need to make sure that you don't get poisoned as you're trying all the, the wines. They go for the king, but so far he'd had good luck, so that was a pretty good position to be in. Not to mention that he's in the, the center of power in Persia, not the ragged promised land that's in ruins and rubble is all around. He's in the center of power. He's in a place that's, that's a comfortable, safe, secure location for him. He's in the trust of the most powerful man in the world, and he leaves it to go to the promised land. He, he, he leaves the safety and security of a, of a job, of the company of the king, to go be with the, the people of the promised land. 
a ragged people in a demolished land. He could have, in chapter 3, even done something different. A lot of Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, is from Nehemiah's own hand, if not from his own accounts. But yet you notice something in Nehemiah 3, conspicuously missing from the list is Nehemiah's name. He's leading this entire thing. Right? Like you could say in one way that all of this cooperation, all this work is because of Nehemiah's leadership, because of what he has accomplished. And yet he doesn't even have his name or any of his accomplishments in this list. His name is missing. Why? He called the people to build the wall, and he called them because their God's name is at stake. Because we're suffering from the scorn of the nations that should be coming to the city and knowing that this is the city of the great king. They should be looking at the city and looking at this people and then it pointing them to, to their great God. He wants them to reflect that. God's name is on the line. His glory is on the line. That's why he encouraged them to build. That's what he had called them to do, saying that God's name is at stake in this. He encouraged them. Chapter 2, verse 18, here's how I want to encourage you. Not that I'm a strong, great leader and going to get all these things going, but God's hand is upon us. And so likely, when chapter 3 is being written, he's influencing it to make sure that his name isn't written so that the people would be encouraged by God's hand at work, not a man's. And so his name is missing. And so here I think of Nehemiah. Here's one to follow. A man that's willing to leave and sacrifice for the sake of other people, for the sake of the name of his God. Here's one who's willing to lay aside self-interest, self-agendas, his own safety, his own comfort, his own securities, and for God's name and the good of God's people, go to a place that he had not been to, to work on something that was, had vastly outsized the people that lived there. And church, we too have such a man. Nehemiah's leadership and sacrifice is great, but it pales to one who would come after him. In Philippians chapter 2, we read of this man, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was receiving from eternity past with the Father and the Spirit this perfection of unity, perfection of relationship, receiving the glory and honor in relationship within the Trinity that he deserves. And he leaves that. He adds to his deity humanity, being born as a man. And then by the people that he created, they were created through him and for him. He is willing to suffer at their hands, not only their, their scorn, but their their brutal attacks against him, indeed leading all the way to his death. The one who is eternal dies. That's a man worth following. And this man is one who is now leading a diverse global family, not to build a wall, but to build the kingdom. And that kingdom has a known end. We read about it in Revelation. That kingdom is going to swallow up all of the kingdoms. It's going to be the one kingdom that remains in the end. And because of his work, his coming, his death, his resurrection, 
among people that are very diverse, this diverse global people, he has broken down walls of hostility, he himself being their peace, so that people from all sorts of different backgrounds who may have hated each other before can all of a sudden come together and say, he's the one that we're most in on. He's the name that we care about the most. We're all for him. And so if you're with him, then we're together on this so that we can work in ways that the world doesn't understand. This gives us a freedom to follow him, to lay aside our selfish interests and selfish agendas and selfish concerns, to unite for the sake of his name and his glory, to carry his mission throughout this earth so that the praise of God's name would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And we know the end. So as we go, we can do this mission with confidence and hope that all that he has put his hand upon is going to succeed. And so we know that God's fame is going to be renowned. That it's going to go out throughout all the world. And the, the greatness of this is that he invites puny, weak, sinful people to be a part if we would just lay aside our own life and take up his. What a privilege that we get to carry forward this mission. That we get to unite with people of all sorts of diverse backgrounds to go and live for this man. There's a saying, I'm sure you've heard it, I think Hudson Taylor said it, God's will done God's way will never lack God's supply. I think as we read Nehemiah, we might want to add to that this reality of opposition. God's will done God's way is never going to lack God's supply, but also the enemy's opposition. They always seem to go together. And we see that in chapter 4 again. In fact, we're going to get a large dose of it in chapter 4. Look at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 4. When Sambalat heard that they were building, what does he do? God's will, God's supply, <laughs> like we, we see all this here, opposition from the enemy. He's very angry, greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews, and he said in the presence of his brothers of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore this for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and the burned ones at that? In 2 Kings chapter 18, this is before the Israelites were in exile. There was this, the Assyria was the power and there was the, the kind of the leader of Assyria, maybe even kind of in a similar position as Nehemiah would have been to Artaxerxes the king. He rolls up to Jerusalem with his army, and he starts taunting the people of God. And while the Assyrians wouldn't have spoken Hebrew, he speaks in Hebrew just so that they can make sure they hear the taunt in an extra special way. And he says, 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 28, this is the Rabshakeh, and he stood and he called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah, that's the king of Israel at the time, don't let him deceive you. He will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out with me to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and eat of his own fig tree and each of you will drink the water of his own cistern. Doesn't that sound nice? And until I come to you and take away your land like your own land, a land of grain and wine and a land of bread and vineyards and a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. And do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath, 
and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim, Hena, and Iva? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of lands have delivered their lands out of my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. Now what's he doing? With his army, he's rallying them, right? Hey guys, you see this people? We've already defeated tons like them. Our God will be for us. It'll be just fine. But you know what he's also doing? He speaks in Hebrew so that the people of God will hear as well. He wants them to know. This isn't just a message for Hezekiah. It's to all of you. You're getting ready to be destroyed. We're bringing down the thunder. You might want to stop it right now before it happens because it's not going to be good. And if he says, oh, our God's going to deliver us, don't listen to him. We've heard that before and we've destroyed all those people too. It's a scare tactic. He's trying to intimidate and rally his troops. Sambalat is doing the same thing. He's doing this in the hearing of the people of God as he asks these questions, as he jeers and taunts. He makes sure that they hear what's going on. He rolls up with his army, and he is doing something similar here. He's trying to boost the morale of his people and crush the morale of the Jews, demoralize them, discourage them, paralyze them from working, bring great fear and dread upon them. And so he asks these questions, can such a people, a feeble people do this? They're tiny. Look at all the rubble. Even that, he says, do they even know what they're getting into? I mean, have they, do they really know how bad this is and how hard it's going to be to rebuild this? This is way worse than they know. They're way more feeble than they know. Can they even do this? And he also adds up, well, are they going to, are they going to sacrifice? And I think what he means there is, like, are, your, are your religious activities going to get this wall built up? Are you going to pray this thing up? Are you going to pray and it's going to rise up and all these, these rocks are going to come up out of the ground and, and build this up? And then he lands with this, this unique barb against them about these burned stones. Like, even if you do build it, look at what you're building with. Those are going to crumble. They're already burned once. It's not going to last. And his friend Tobiah, he jumps in on the action too, and he adds in verse 3, Yeah, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Now, foxes are known to be sly. They're not really known to be particularly heavy. They're rodents, just a little bit bigger than like a a squirrel, right? It's a joke to think that if a a fox could go on your wall and it's going to break down, that your wall is a complete joke. And if a fox can come on your wall and break it down, then the army that's around us, this isn't going to be an issue for us. And what are they building? What a joke. And likely all of these questions, all of these taunts are calculated. In other words, when they're throwing these out there, they hold weight, They're landing in the right kind of spot because they've been around this people before. They have specific questions, specific taunts to maximize the fear and the dread upon the people of God. You can add to the context that 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 people and that army had, had been in this kind of position before and that army had stopped by force the work that they had begun on the wall already. That's probably the news that Nehemiah heard when he found out that things in the promised land were bad that they had come by force, stopped the building of the wall, probably burned some more. So these are not empty words. They are potentially devastating words. Infection is threatening the building of the wall. And this barrage of questions and taunts from the enemies leading to the Jews, or at least their desires to lead to doubts and demoralization and fear and dread is an ancient strategy. It's nothing new. It's actually an invitation of sorts to see things differently. 
Oh, don't listen to this Nehemiah who says God's hands upon you. See it differently. Your walls are terrible. You're feeble. You can't do it. A fox can climb on it and knock it down. See it through our eyes. It's an ancient strategy. There's a snake that slithered into the garden that said to Eve, the woman, did God really say? I see it through my eyes, right? That, look at that. That fruit looks good. Tastes good. You know it's going to taste good. Everything else he's made tastes good. Oh, did he really say? See it differently. Or when the, the enemy came in the wilderness to the Son of God, and he says, well, if you are the Son of God, now you're looking at it wrongly. Here's what sons of gods do. Throw yourself down. Turn these stones into bread. See it differently. It's an invitation to look at things through a new perspective, a new view. And it's an open barrage of questions, taunts, and words. And it's the enemy's oldest strategy to scare, to intimidate, to demoralize, to hinder any work of God's people or any work that God would desire to be done. We know that Satan is a liar. And in John 8, Jesus says he's the father of lies. So the seed of the serpent is a seed of liars. We know that he's an accuser, that he stands accusing even the people of God day and night. And so that the seed of the serpent are accusers. This is what they do. This is their strategy and their tactic. Sambalat and Tobiah, they stand in an ancient line of accusers and liars. And so here they are, accusing, lying, seeking the opposite of the good of God's people. When that good is being sought after, it greatly enrages them. They're seeking to hinder the work of God's people however they can. Now, what would we do if we were to face similar opposition? If that ancient tactic was unleashed on us, if we were under a barrage of questions and taunts and words from the enemy, I think it should be expected. It's the normal tactic. It's a go-to God's people will face this kind of opposition. You probably have, or if not, you will face this opposition in the world from others. And we're reminded that not just from flesh and blood, but our battle is also spiritual forces. And what they're going to try to do is to get us to see things differently. Look through different eyes. Don't live by faith. Live by sight. They're going to ridicule You're going to try to demoralize, to discourage, to hinder in any way they can the work of God through the people of God. And my guess is that maybe some of you even face this this morning. Think of the questions that are being thrown out here. Why would you go to church? What is that going to do? Why would you go to a home group? Get with some people. That's not going to help anything. You're feeble. You'll never be able to get any help from those places. Do you even know what you're getting into? You know what's going to happen if you go, right? They're going to want you to be involved with other things. Probably going to ask you to give. Right? They're going to try to get you in their group as well. There's going to be some more going on. Do you even know what you're getting into? You better count the cost before you go. Or the sermon. That's going to be feeble. Maybe that's my particular one. It won't help. How is opening that up and listening to somebody for a while going to help anything that's going on in your actual life? You think that a sermon or a home group is going to help with all of your huge problems? Look around. It's a a complete disaster. Everything is crumbled. There's rubble 
everywhere. There's too much trouble. There's too much mess. Going to church, being in a home group, being, those things aren't going to help. And even if it does help for a little while, Monday's coming. Monday's coming. And your huge problem's going to remain. You're just building with burned stones. A fox could climb up on it and it's going to destroy it all again. Have you ever faced this? Facing it this morning? The design is destruction to hinder, to bring fear, dread, and trepidation to us. And if a barrage of words and questions and taunts should face us, an open attack, the normal tactic, how would we respond? I think Nehemiah helps us. Look at verse 4. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Now, Nehemiah has in front of him a real army, a real threat, a real enemy. He has with him a real people. They are feeble. They need help. And his first response is prayer. What in the world? He doesn't respond first to his enemies. He doesn't turn to his people first and encourage them. He prays. Nehemiah doesn't give in to the intimidation, to the taunts, to the questions. He does what he did with the tough news that he heard in chapter 1. He does what he did when he was afraid in the front of Artaxerxes in the court. He prays. That's his first tactic. Here, O our God. Nehemiah gets it. He gets that his best tactic is to live by faith. He understands that their primary need, his primary need, is not from something down below, but from help from above. He gets it. He needs God's help, and so he wields prayer. He uses the tactic of prayer. You might remember in Ephesians chapter 6, I alluded to it earlier, but it reminds us that our battle is not a battle against flesh and blood. That we also have this battle against spiritual forces and that we are to put on the full armor of God. Take up the sword of the word. And here's what it says in verse 17 and 18. As we take up the, the sword, the weapon of the word of God, we're praying at all times. That's interesting. Take up the sword praying. Put on the helmet, praying. Put on this armor, praying at all times. Prayer is war. It's given to us by Paul in the context of a battle. Like you need some specific tactics drawn up. You need something for the battle. And here's what Paul gives us. Pray at all times. Opposition, barrage of words and questions and taunts that are weighty, that are ringing true in your minds as you look around the mess of your lives and the the greatness of the opposition, pray. That's what the scripture would give us. Do you pray? Nehemiah takes their barrage of words and he first takes it to the Lord. Hear, O our God, he says in verse 4, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Now that's an interesting prayer. This is what we would call an imprecatory prayer. It's a call for God to judge their enemies. 
Now, I would note here that Nehemiah shows restraint. Nehemiah doesn't pray for some personal vengeance. He doesn't pray for some sort of personal vendetta that he has against them. Like, I've heard enough of Sambalat. He annoys me. Take him out. He doesn't do that. Here's what he does. He prays for God. In other words, he's, he's calling on God to be the primary actor in this. So he's submitting himself to God, and he wants God to act against sin. He doesn't want God to act in general, but against sin. And we know, of course, that Sambalat and Tobiah are sinners walking in their sin, and Nehemiah wants God to work against that. So he shows restraint. He submits, I think, the situation to God for his evaluation as he calls on him. Oh, Lord, hear this. It's up to you what you do with it, but I want you to act against our enemy. There's not a personal vendetta. He submits the situation to his God. Now, let's remember, as we think through his prayer here, that probably seems a little bit harsh. What's at stake? Because Nehemiah encouraged the people to build because God's name was on the line. His glory is at stake. This is the city of the great king. Nations should be coming here and worshiping and adoring the greatness of our God because of what they see here, and they're not. They're taunting us. They hold us in scorn and derision. God's name is on the line here. God's name is on the line in the wall and in Jerusalem and in God's people. For Nehemiah, for these people, it's about God's purposes. It's about God's glory. And so he sees their taunts and their questions, and he hears their barrage of words, and he sees them as an affront to God, as a slight to the work that God has called them to do. Verse 4, he says, we are despised. Verse 5, he says, they provoked you. And where that's the case, where God's name is on the line and there's an affront to God, a taunt against God and His name, a slight to the work of God or to the people of God, when that's the case in the Scripture, these types of prayers follow from the faithful. You look in the Psalms, and these kind of prayers are all over the place. And you think about the context of some of them as they were praying those prayers. It was in great opposition from the enemies of the people of God, from enemies of God, from pagan rulers and kings, and those who would have anything to do with the name of God destroyed. And these kind of prayers come out. And I think one author gives us a helpful, helpful explanation that the key principle here is stated in Psalm 139. This is one example. You will find many if you read the Psalms. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Now, that's a tough prayer. He goes on to say that the nearer we come to this state of mind, which is what? A spinoff from the desire that God's will would be done, that his kingdom would come, that his name be hallowed and glorified. You heard those before? Those are New Testament prayers from Jesus that he told us to pray. The less problem we shall have with vengeance prayers. Maybe prayers, like what we read here from Nehemiah, imprecatory prayers seem harsh and uncomfortable to us because God's name means so little to us. Because His glory and renown isn't something that we're willing to step up and defend. I think that indifference to the opposition of God's people, indifference to the taunts against God's name, that should make us uncomfortable. 
much more uncomfortable than any of these imprecatory prayers. If God's name and if God's glory, if God's purposes are on the line, then is there room for indifference among God's faithful? Those who are called by his name, those who are instructed to eat, drink, and do whatever they do to his glory, those who are instructed to pray, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, is there room for indifference among that people? How could those who love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, who pray, hallowed be their na- your name in every situation, be indifferent when his name is being attacked? Well, that's why these uncomfortable, imprecatory prayers are all over the Psalms and in Nehemiah and elsewhere in the Scripture. God's name is on the line. And yet, as you read the Psalms, you know that imprecatory Psalms aren't all that the Psalms include. Right? There's Psalms of praise. There are Psalms of adoration of God. And so we don't just want to read one Psalm, an imprecatory Psalm, and say, oh my goodness, we can never pray this. We take it as a fuller picture, all the Psalms. Here's what God has given His people to pray. We pray for justice and for mercy. We pray for them to see God's name and for them to be brought down. We pray for all of those things. And I think we could say the same of Nehemiah too. He doesn't have everything here in this one prayer. So before we're too harsh on him and his prayer, we say, like, this isn't all that Nehemiah prayed. We don't know if he prayed for Sanballat and Tobiah to be converted and join them in their building or not. We can judge based on his character that we see in the book, and I'll leave that to you, but we don't know that he didn't pray that. This is just an example of an in-the-moment, a very tense situation. Here's what he lets go to the Lord. So the question remains, what are we to do with these prayers? What are we to do with Nehemiah's prayer here? What are we to do with these imprecatory prayers in the Psalms? Are they an example for how we should pray to opposition? to a barrage of words and taunts against us. One commentator helps us. It is not open to us to renounce or ignore the psalmist. So don't cast off all these imprecatory prayers in the psalms and say, the New Testament tells us to pray for those who persecute us, so we could never pray those. Don't do that. Don't cast off Nehemiah's prayer here either. But equally, it's not open to us simply to occupy the ground on which they stood. And this is important, Right? Between our day and theirs, our calling and theirs stands the cross. And that literally changes everything. We are not standing on the same ground that they are standing on. They didn't have the same information and knowledge and revelation from God that we have. So we don't ignore it or renounce it, but we think through it rightly based on our day, not theirs, our calling, and on this side of the cross. And so how do we deal with it? How do we pray then if we're not on the same ground? How do we pray then in line with the New Testament that says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, bless and do not curse, overcome evil with good, right? Return not evil for evil, but good for evil. How do we pray in line with that and hold rightly these imprecatory prayers? He continues, as men in need who may yet be rescued, they are to be loved and sought. So if we're looking at opposition in our day, if there is chance for rescue, we are to love them and seek after them. As men who have injured us, they must be forgiven. But as men to follow or to cultivate, they are to be rejected utterly, as are the principalities and the powers behind them. It's not loving to pray that they continue in that way of life for anybody, for them included. It is loving to pray that their actions of sinful actions against God and His people to stop. It's loving for them to pray that. 
And we also want to pray that their work would be hindered. So I think that as we take this all down, we could say, we could pray as believers in the face of opposition, God, help me to love them as you have called me to do. We are to love our enemies. Help me. Save them, O God. I was once an enemy, and you reconciled me by the death of your son. Do that for them. But if not, thwart their efforts. Don't let them succeed in what they're doing and drawing people away from you. We could pray. In the midst of a world of Saul's, God, you know Saul. Help me to love Saul. Some believers had to face that, right? You need to go to Saul. Like, I don't know. He's a bad guy. He kills people. Help us to love the Saul's, but God, turn them into Paul's. Transform them. Change them. Or at least prevent them from harming more of God's people and carrying them away into prison and killing them. Here's what we know. In all cases, we pray. And we pray first, not just in order, but in priority. Hallowed be your name here, God. In this person, in this opposition, in my life, in the way I respond to this opposition, hallowed be your name. We take it all to God. We submit it all to God. We entrust it all to Him. And we do it knowing that God is both just and the justifier of those who had faith in Jesus. We do it all knowing that the ultimate judge is not us, nor does our judgment ultimately matter for anything, but the judgment that everybody will respond to is the ultimate judge. Everyone's going to give an account to him. And so all opposition against the Lord, we, we can take it to him and know that all of it will fail so we can pray and live and respond with that reality in mind. And that's what happens to Sambalat's words here. Listen to verse 6. So we built the wall, and the wall was joined together to half its heights, for the people had a mind to work. Verse 6 is God's hand at work. God's hand doing His work. That these people are listening to this, and they had a mind to work. And ultimately, all of God's people can be assured that God's purposes are going to move forward, no matter the opposition. That God's will will prevail. He will finish what he started. His church will stand against her enemies. The enemies of the people of God will not win. How do we know this? Because God himself came down. And he lived a perfect life. And he died a sacrificial death. That the enemies of the people of God, sinful people, executed on him, crucifying him, and even that couldn't hold him. Even that couldn't defeat the will of God. Even that couldn't defeat the purposes of God. And instead, he raises from the dead, from dead, and he carries his mission forward as the one who's triumphant. And he puts all other kingdoms on notice. If he can defeat death itself, there is nothing that will keep him from ultimately, finally, and fully prevailing. Church, one of the things that we need to do in a world that that opposes God and his name and his people is we remember that work, that man, that God. One of the ways that we do that as the people of God together is called the Lord's Supper. 
where Jesus told us to remember his life, his death, his resurrection. This is a meal where we are reminded that we were once enemies to God, that his blood had to be poured out, his body broken, so that we, his enemies, could be reconciled to this holy God. But that now, through his work, we get to stand as victors in the midst of the battle. The battle is not done, but we know the end, and right now Jesus tells us to remember that we've won in him. So we take a meal on the field of battle together, and we remember that we have victory in him. And we do this knowing that as we're celebrating victory right now, that we're reminding ourselves he's going to come back and finish this thing. So if you're his, remember that this is the one that's going to prevail. Put your confidence and hope more fully in him. His opposition will not ultimately prevail. His purposes will. You included if you're in him. If you're not in him, we would say that God's judgment rests upon you that we would remind you of the justice of the Lord, and we would say the only way out of it is to run to the justifier. That is Jesus, whose body was broken and blood poured out so that you might not have to face his judgment and his wrath eternally. So we'd say, don't take this meal, take him instead. If you need help with what that means and looks like, find another believer, come ask one of us. We'd love to share with you what it means to put your faith and trust in Jesus. Let's bow in prayer as we prepare for this meal together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are great. There is none beside you. You tell the world, you tell your enemies what you're going to do and how you're going to do it, and then you do it. No one else can do that. God, we can have great confidence that you will finish the work you started. You will build your church. You will present your bride perfect and whole one day. And Father, until then, you've called us to be on mission you called us to partner with you to build that kingdom, to be that bride. You've called us from all different backgrounds, different careers, different races and nationalities, God. So many, so many differences, even in this crowd. And that in itself is a testimony of the power of Christ in us, the spirit that lives in us, that brings that unity that would otherwise never exist. It's such a powerful testimony, but Lord, we know that it can also be a weapon used by the enemy to try and divide. We know that we'll face opposition and that our enemy will use any tactic he can or to try and detract from your great name, to try and force your people or cause your people to stumble. God, help us as you helped Nehemiah and the Israelites to rebuild the wall. Help us, Father, to, to stay focused, to look to you, 
to be a people of prayer, to rely on your great strength, God, to complete the mission that you have promised you will complete through us. Lord, we're sinners. We're faulty. We're imperfect. We're needy. We're weak. And yet, Lord, you are none of those things. You're perfect. You're holy. And we know that you promise to provide everything we need to complete the wall, to complete the mission, Father, that you have called us to be on. Help us, Lord, as your people to believe, to pray diligently, to seek to protect unity, and to never forget, Lord, this is not about our name. It's about your name.